Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but there are an awful lot of people today. I don't know if you've come across this. There are even songs on the internet about how many days uh, there are in the world. I checked in my phone contacts this afternoon. I have 20 days or Davids uh, in my phone. Two of the Davids have exactly the same name. Um, so I don't know how I was oh, how do I know which ones are ring? Uh, it's quite complicated. But what we have before us in 1 Samuel uh, is the reason why. 1 and 2 Samuel, uh, not so much about Samuel, actually dies half the way through, uh, but more about David and the run-up to his reign. The two books, 1 and 2 Samuel, are one book uh, in the Hebrew Bible. They were split in two when the Bible was translated into Greek. And since originally the Greek version was more popular, that's what we've gone with as well. But really, they're actually one book. That's, uh, they're, they're holding uh, together one very long book, but one book nonetheless. Um, so what we have here is something to look at together as one story. Uh, and it also means that even though we call it 1 and 2 Samuel, uh, at least half of it wasn't written by Samuel. Uh, so he dies in 1 Samuel 25, before even 1 Samuel is finished, let alone 2 Samuel. Um, but it does start off with Samuel's story, which makes sense of uh, why we put it there. What is it about, though? Well, firstly, the plot. Put simply, what we have in 1 Samuel, it goes from Eli to Samuel, Samuel to Saul, Saul to David, uh, while, he's still, uh, while Saul is still alive. 2 Samuel is just David. Briefly as king of Judah, and then David king of all Israel for the rest of the book. So any stories that you know about these guys will probably be there uh, in 1 and 2 Samuel. And what makes 1 and 2 Samuel different from, say, 1 and 2 Chronicles, is that 1 and 2 Samuel is a warts and all account of these people. Their mistakes, as well as their victories. Their errors, as well as their graces. So we get Eli and his bad parenting, allowing his kids to do as they please, bringing dishonour and eventually death to his family. We get Samuel and his bad parenting, who appoints his sons as judges, even though they end up accepting bribes and perverting justice. We get Saul and his disobedience to God, how he offers unpermitted sacrifices and seeks to murder David. And of course, his bad parenting as well, as he ostracises his son for supporting David. We get David and his adultery with Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah, his counting of the people, and his bad parenting, uh, as well as he allows his children to attack and abuse one another without sanction. As well as pointing for the need of a good king, it also seems to call for a good parenting manual, uh, I think, as you go through the book. But the book opens on a positive note. You get the story of Hannah and the miraculous birth of Samuel. You get the Song of Hannah, which forms the basis for the Song of Mary in the New Testament, which we call uh, the Magnificat. It's a story that sounds a bit like Jacob from Genesis. That was the sort of birth of a nation situation. Well, there's a, there was a man married to uh, two women, and here we get a man married to two women. Unlike Rachel and Leah, one wife, Hannah, has been unable to conceive children. So she prays at the temple... And long story short, she has a child, and she gives him, and he ends up, uh, oh, sorry, she gives him to high priest Eli to raise. The child is Samuel, who's the book is named after. He's commissioned by God and becomes Israel's priest, prophet, and judge. Only Moses so far in the story has worn so many hats, uh, if you like. But Samuel takes up those three hats as well. 
Meanwhile, Eli's two sons are working their way through the young women who serve at the tabernacle and stealing from worshippers there by lying about what sacrifices they were supposed to offer and instead telling them instead what their preference for meat was. Uh, so they wanted it roasted rather than boiled, so that's what they tell the people. The Lord pronounces judgment on them and both of them are slain by the Philistines in an attack. And during that attack, the Ark of the Covenant is taken. When Eli hears about it, he falls backwards off his chair and dies, leaving Samuel as high priest. The Ark is returned to Israel after it keeps knocking over statues of Dagon in their temple, and the Philistines start breaking out in tumours. So they decide it's a good idea to send it back to Israel. They don't want it anymore. Then Israel, after it comes back, demands a king. Partly due to the fact that Samuel's sons are just not up to scratch, taking bribes and perverting justice. They want a king to be like all the nations in 1 Samuel 8. It's like everyone else has a king. Everyone else has got one. We don't want to be different from the nations around us. But if you think about it, that's exactly what they were supposed to be, wasn't it? They were supposed to be different from the nations around them. Nevertheless, this was always part of God's plan. He'd given instructions on what king de- uh, a king should be like, and uh, he'd done all that back when Moses was around, back in Deuteronomy. So God gives them a king like all the nations around them. In other words, a bad one. Saul the Benjaminite. Now, if you're here for the book of Judges, you remember that Benjamin is not the sort of best tribe. And in fact, the place that, uh, that Saul comes from is the place that, where the really bad things have happened in Judges. So it should be sort of alarm bells as you read this, uh, that Saul is not going to be a good king. He looks like a king, he's got the sort of, you know, bravado, but he's insecure and he's just not up to it. I mean, for example, when they actually start to appoint him as king, he's hiding in the luggage, uh, not really uh, a front person. And he's always making mistakes, trying to do things his own way and keep people on side. He offers sacrifices he's not authorised to when Samuel turns up later than expected. He nearly ends up having to execute his son Jonathan when he calls a fast on pain of death, but forgets to mention this to his son. He nearly uh, he, uh, even said that he would kill Jonathan in that case if he ate and then actually doesn't. So he sort of does it wrong both ways. He said that he would and then he doesn't. But if he did, he'd have to kill his son. He doesn't do as he's told when defeating the Amalekites and keeps their king and their livestock alive. And so God rejects him as a king. He removes his Holy Spirit from him, possible in the Old Testament, and an evil, tormenting spirit comes in its stead, or in his stead. He promises that the kingdom will not pass on to Jonathan, but to someone else. Enter in the story David, in the chapter that we had read. David. David is anointed as king by Samuel, and David enters Saul's service as a liar player. And in the next chapter, we have the classic David versus Goliath. With David, if you think about it, acting more like a king than Saul does. In the time that follows, David and Jonathan, Saul's son, become good friends. David marries, I never know how to pronounce this, it wasn't on a set of Michael, but it's not probably Michael, because that's not a girl's name. Michelle, Michael, Michael, let's go with Michael, uh, Saul's daughter. And all the while becoming more and more famous as a great military leader. Insecure Saul, though, is jealous. And most of the rest of 1 Samuel is taken up with Saul pursuing David 
and trying to kill him. David hides out amongst the Philistines and has many chances to kill Saul but won't. David marries another woman, Abigail, and Saul just keeps getting crazier and crazier and crazier. In the end, Saul dies on the battlefield after being badly wounded. He commits suicide, falling on his own sword to avoid possible torture by the Philistines. Jonathan, his son, dies too in the same battle, and that's the end of 1 Samuel. It's basically the whole thing. 2 Samuel, more briefly, is just about David. How he becomes king of Judah first, then king over Israel second, after Saul's other son, Ishbosheth, is murdered by two men who think that they're doing David a favour. But David has them both put to death for their cowardly act. But then David becomes king of all Israel. He moves the capital of Israel from Hebron, where Abraham had dwelt, to Jerusalem, newly conquered from the Jebusites. David brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, though a man of other touches it on the way and is struck down dead. That's that story in 2 Samuel. David starts to make plans to have the temple built to house the Ark. But God speaks to David and tells him that one of his offspring will build it, and that one of his offspring will rule forever and God will be his father. In other words, his offspring will be the son of God. David continues to be successful militarily, but family life, not so great. He commits adultery with a married woman, Bathsheba, and arranges to have her husband killed, which he does, he dies. David is called out about this by Nathan the prophet, and David's child by Bathsheba dies as a result. David's son Amnon assaults his half-sister Tamar, and David, although angry about it, takes no action. David's uh, son Absalom, which is Tamar's uh, brother, then murders Amnon and declares himself king, forcing David to flee Jerusalem. In the end, Absalom is killed after being uh, caught by his ample hairdo. It's quite almost like a humorous story, where he gets caught in a tree by his big long hair. Um, I can never quite imagine exactly how, how, how it was imagined a bit like Samson, but sort of caught in a tree. Um, but uh, he gets caught, and David returns to Jerusalem. Wins some victories, writes some psalms, gets old. Uh, calls the census, bad idea, causing a plague. And the book ends with David purchasing a threshing floor to build an altar where the plague had stopped. The floor we'll see in the next book is where the temple would be built. And that's the end of 2 Samuel, that's the whole, the whole lot. So that's the plot, but what's the point? Well, the point of 1 and 2 Samuel seems to be an expansion of what we saw in Judges. It's showing us that God's people need a king. But not just any king, that's where this goes. Not just any king, it needs to be the right king. Saul was the people's choice, but he was not God's choice. He was there to show them what would happen if they had a king like the nations all around them. A king that would replace God as king, rather than rule under him as king. Saul provides a purely negative example, whereas David provides a more hopeful one. Whoever wrote the book is clearly a cheerleader for David and David's line, but not to the point that he's not afraid to show his faults and mistakes. The book shows us that a good king is needed. But even when there's a good king like David, their sin and imperfection leads to horrible consequences, not just for David, but for the whole nation. The well-being of the nation is linked to the holiness of the king. 
The only chance then for the people is to have a king who is truly holy, who has zero sin. And the book makes it clear that whilst David is promising, he is not the king that we need. But he's like the king that we need. He's pointing forward to someone else. The book says that he's a man after God's own heart. Now for years I thought that that meant that David loved God. That his heart was after God, if you like. But actually it's more God's love for David that's in mind with that statement. If you think about it, it's God's heart that's in mind. So David was a man after God's own heart. He's loved by God, whose heart is the one in mind. And that's backed up uh, in the verse that we had read to us before in uh, 1 Samuel 16. Uh, 1 Samuel 16, 7, that the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And again, this is a verse that I think we've misread mostly down through the years, or certainly I have. It literally reads, man looks eyes, God looks heart. Man looks eyes, God looks heart. So Jung's literal translation has it like this. He sees not as man sees, for man looks at the eyes, and the Lord looks at the heart. That's a bit weird, weird statement, isn't it? As though man, man looks at the eyes, and God looks at the heart. It's more, isn't it, the idea that man looks with his eyes, and that God looks with his heart. So it would read this way, the Lord sees not in the way that man sees with his eyes. Man looks with his eyes, but God looks with his heart. Looking at it that way, again, it's not, uh, it's God's heart, isn't it, that's at mind. Uh, God doesn't look with his eyes at people, he looks with his heart. And David, he loved. That's what it's telling us. David, he loved. So it wasn't that David had a better heart than all his brothers, which is often the way that it's read. You know, David's got a better heart, so God chose him. The lesson that's subtly taught there is that it's not by grace that we're chosen, but those with better hearts get chosen. But it's not David's heart that's in mind. Now, of course, David loves God. You can't read the Psalms and not notice that David loves God. But like us, he loves because he was first loved by God. So what it's really showing us is that we need a king that God loves. It's striking at Jesus' baptism then, isn't it, when his ministry begins. It begins not with Jesus' declaration of love for God, but God's declaration of his love for his son. More of that in a second. So the king we need needs to be God's choice. God's elected one, God's man, the one that God loves and then loves God in return. In other words, we need Jesus Christ. The book also sets up the nature of David's line, the eternal nature of David's line. The sons of David, and ultimately the, uh, the son of David, who was to follow, first get their mention here. The promises God made to David of a son who would build a house for his name and rule forever. That's what we get in 2 Samuel. In the storyline of Samuel and Kings, we're to understand this as Solomon who builds the temple. But he doesn't entirely fulfill all the promises. He doesn't reign forever. 
In fact, he messes up so bad that because of him, the kingdom will split in two. But more of that next time. But the way that prophecy often works in the Bible is that there's a sort of provisional fulfilment close to the time, and a full one later. That's what happened with Joshua, if you remember, a sort of provisional rest in the land, looking forward to a lasting one. And that's why the New Testament can keep referring to Jesus as the son of David, the one who is the fulfilment of that king who will reign forever, the one who would build a house for his name, the new temple, the church, the son of David who has God as his father, the son of God, in other words. The Son of God, then, is a title, as well as being literally true for Jesus, it was a title for the true King of Israel that was to come. Jesus is that Son of David, who is also the Son of God. Literally the Son of David through both Joseph and Mary's lines, and literally the Son of God by his conception by the Holy Spirit. But why are we talking about Jesus there? What has it got to do with us? Well, the thing is that we need to remember that Jesus is actually the hero of 1 and 2 Samuel, and not us, not even David. And actually, so many of our stories, we put ourselves, as we read 1 and 2 Samuel, we put ourselves as David, or as Samuel, or as the hero. But why? Actually, when you read it through, they point to our true hero, Jesus, and actually only to us in a secondary way. I mean, where are we in the stories, mainly? Actually, we are the Israelites, aren't we? We're God's people. We are the ones accepting or rejecting David's kingly claim on our lives. But in our case, we're accepting either Jesus' claim to our life or rejecting it. And there is much to learn from David for us, too, as we see that through Christ. Because actually, we're supposed to be like Christ, who is the son of David. But what it means, though, is even if your name is David, You are not David, initially, in the story. Actually, we need to see that as Christ. And we need to let 1 and 2 Samuel point us to him, and then understand how we live under him. And that is 1 and 2 Samuel.